Gracious God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This morning's readings raise some serious financial questions. And I'm mindful as I begin this sermon that many preachers don't like to talk about money. Apart from stewardship season, that blessed time at the end of the year when we have to talk about money because we're asking the congregation to fund the ministry, we don't like to talk about money much in church. I've been told that in polite company, you don't talk about politics, money, or religion. Well, if you don't want to hear about religion, you're totally in the wrong place. (laughs) Today, you're going to get a little bit of economics as well. This morning, from the scriptures, I want to make three points about economics, particularly two of them about debt. The first is simple. Debt can be hazardous to your spiritual health. Then second, I want to talk about Jesus' approach to the creditors. I'll argue that if borrowing money can be spiritually hazardous, then lending money can be morally precarious. Finally, I want to talk about the unnamed woman, the named women at the end of the gospel, and Jesus' economy, all in just a few minutes. First, Debt can be hazardous to your spiritual health. In the Bible, debt is most often found between the lines. When we read the story of Moses and the Exodus, for example, what we miss sometimes is that the people Israel are in slavery because they are in debt. God's rescue of the people is partly a rescue from debt. Debt in scripture is often problematic. Debt literally enslaves people in both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Now today, debt does not literally place people in bondage, but figuratively, many people in our society feel caught in debt. Debt can cause anxiety, depression. There are even studies that link debt to physical maladies like obesity and diabetes. Debt can consume our money, our time, our mental energy, and yes, our freedom. Debt can be hazardous. Now, it can be dangerous to talk in generalities when it comes to debt. Borrowing is a necessity for many of us in a capitalist economy. It makes more financial sense for many people to own a home than to rent. And home ownership often means taking on debt. But not all debt is created equal. For some, debt makes certain economic sense. Manageable payments on a low-interest fixed-rate mortgage are less hazardous to your health than high-interest credit cards. Student loans that come with payback schemes that pin the amount due each month to your current income are even more attentive to the well-being of the borrower. But there's a symptom of brokenness in our society when we look at debt. As a a society, healthy debt most often belongs to upper-middle-class families. And unhealthy debt most often traps poor people of color. Not all debt is created equal. 
Jesus often speaks in parables, like our parable today about debts being forgiven, more about forgiveness and debt in a moment. But in the first move of his public ministry, back in chapter 4 of Luke's Gospel, Jesus gets up in the synagogue to read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. In part, he says this, I have proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. That year of the Lord's favor had a particular meaning in Jesus' society. The Sabbath year, every seven years, all debts were forgiven. Could you imagine today? We'd have to have much shorter term loans. All debts were forgiven. The economic realities of the Judeo-Christian world in the early centuries of the church were so different than our own realities today. Theologians like Ched Myers in California and Walter Brueggemann, who was once head of Eden Seminary, talk about jubilee economics and Sabbath economics to help us understand that the way we treat each other in our capitalist society with money has not always been the way. There are other biblical standards. There are other ways of doing business. It takes some real work to learn that way because we're so deep in our current economy. But there are other ways. Sabbath year meant the forgiveness of debt. Much of Jesus' message of salvation is about literal release from financial slavery. How does this work in our current world? Justin Welby became Archbishop of Canterbury back in 2013. Before he was a bishop, before he was a priest, he was an oil executive. He worked in the business world. Early in his first year as Archbishop, he announced that he wanted to close the payday lenders in Great Britain. Now, we've heard a lot about payday lenders lately here in the United States. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau just created new regulations to try to curb the worst abuses of high-interest lending. But the Archbishop said that in the United Kingdom, he wasn't going to try to legislate lead lenders out of business. Payday loans plug a hole in the economy. Sometimes people with less than perfect credit need money fast. Even if the government finds a way to close the storefronts, predatory lenders of some type would find legal loopholes. So instead of trying to use the law, the archbishop announced that he wanted to outcompete the lenders. Archbishop Welby is expanding the Church of England's banking business. There's a credit union in the Church of England And he's working across the United Kingdom to get churches and charities involved in making loans. But more than that, he's working to create a culture of credit counseling in the church. He's trying to get churches to host discussion groups, to break the taboo about talking about money. Only by making space for an honest accounting of personal finances can we improve the financial health of our communities. The Archbishop is asking churches to help people access more reasonable loans. And in England, he's getting the church into the banking business. If you want to read more about this, go to toyourcredit.org.uk. He's quippy, that Archbishop. 
I know many of you at Holy Communion have a healthy bank account balance. But I also know that others in our congregation and our community struggle to pay credit cards, rent, student loans, and grocery bills. Later this summer, I'm going to explore putting together our own course on financial health, following the example of Archbishop Justin. I know some of our members have had great success in such courses, organizing finances and getting out of debt. If we are going to be a healthy congregation, I think we need to be able to talk about money and not just when the church needs some. I think we need to be in the business of helping some of our members work their way out of debt. I can't think of a better way to make a concrete improvement in the emotional well-being of so many in our community than to help them worry less financially. Alleviating financial worries can set human beings free from anxiety and depression, which are toxic to the spiritual life. That toxicity is what can make certain kinds of debt a spiritually hazardous proposition. But if borrowing money can be spiritually hazardous, lending money can be morally precarious. When you look at Jesus' discussions of wealth, there's one thing he never does. Jesus never talks about debt as sinful. Jesus equates forgiving debt with forgiving sin, but he doesn't turn the idea around. Don't let your take-home from today be that debt is sinful. If that's what you take home, I have failed as your preacher. Being in debt is not sinful in Jesus' worldview. Debt can be hard to bear. Debt can stress us out, limit our ability to make decisions, but having debt is not a sinful proposition. For Jesus... The question of morality around debt is put to the creditors. Our parable this morning in Luke has a cousin in Matthew chapter 18. You probably know it. Jesus again mentions a ruler who is owed a debt. The servant in this debt owes millions, more than he could ever repay. The king forgives his debt entirely, and the servant rejoices. But as he leaves the palace, he stops by a fellow servant's house. Turns out the debtor is also a creditor. This other servant owes him money. He demands immediate repayment and brings the guy to court when he won't pay. The king gets word and is furious. How we treat our debtors figures large in Jesus' teaching. One of the translations of the Lord's Prayer includes this line, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The best response in Jesus' mind to a debtor is forgiving debt. This is a difficult teaching in our current society, the way that we all use banks. It's a long distance often between the creditor and the debtor. And I'm not eager to see my savings account balance vanish because the, the bank has decided to forgive someone's debt. I'll be honest. But there's a line in the confession of sin we've been saying here for the last few weeks. It's this new confession written for the liturgical resource enriching our worship that we're experimenting with this summer. And the line goes like this. We repent of the evil that enslaves us the evil we have done and the evil done on our behalf. 
we're implicated in the financial systems that we participate in. It's part of the reality of this world that we live in. So if Jesus' mind, the best response to a debtor is forgiving the debt, what can that look like? Did any of you see John Oliver's show last week tonight on HBO this last Sunday? John Oliver had the biggest giveaway in any television show in history. He even topped Oprah Winfrey's famous giveaway where she told the audience, you get a car and you get a car and you get a car. John Oliver gave away almost $15 million and he did it by forgiving debt. So how did it work? Last week, John Oliver's news show focused on the practice of debt buying in our economy. In a nutshell, many creditors today, from hospitals on down to credit card companies, will sell past due debts for pennies on the dollars. The companies who buy these debts then often employ loan sharks and collection agencies to threaten the safety and well-being of people who are in debt. Oliver played voicemail recordings from collection agents threatening to physically harm borrowers who were past due. Other creditors file lawsuits in court attempting to force payments through garnished wages. And St. Louis was listed among the cities where this is happening more than anywhere else in the country. One of the best definitions of sin that I know is this. Sin is that which diminishes the humanity of another or diminishes my own humanity. Let me say that again. Sin is that which diminishes the humanity of the other or diminishes my own humanity. I can't think of a more morally questionable job than debt collector for one of these agencies. Calling person after person to demand money be paid to threaten them with lawsuits and worse, that would be a tough job. It would wear on your soul. So what did John Oliver do in response? Well, he incorporated a new agency in the state of Mississippi. He called it CARP, after the bottom-feeding fish. <laughs> he didn't even have to drive down to Jackson to do it. He just filled out some forms online to create this business. Within a few days of forming his company, the company was offered over, about, not quite, but almost $15 million in hospital debt from Texas. People who didn't have insurance or whose insurance didn't cover their full bill, John Oliver suddenly had their social security numbers, phone numbers, addresses, and names. John Oliver's show paid just $60,000 for that debt. And legally, he would have been allowed to employ people to use all that contact information to track the people down and collect as much of the 15 million as he could get. He could even file lawsuits with every person demanding payment. He didn't. Instead, he gave the debt to a charity. All of those people who owed the hospital money are getting a letter in the mail telling them their debt has been forgiven, simply forgiven. That $15 million giveaway was the biggest in television history, and it only cost them $60,000. We've created a financial system that can be morally bankrupt, 
and our practice of treating companies as people has created an unhealthy distance between creditors and debtors. The abuses we see today are not unlike the abuses between Ahab, his wife Jezebel, and Naboth, the vineyard owner. When we take the humanity, we take the life out of our financial dealings, we do it to our own parable, or our own peril. Ahab sits there and whines on his bed about not getting his way. And then he imperils his own soul when he takes possession. There's a lot of taking possession in our economy. It may not be as direct as in 1 Kings, but the consequences are similar. Jesus encourages creditors to see the humanity of their debtors. Jesus encourages us, whenever possible, to forgive debts, to alleviate suffering. We need to get a lot more humanity into our financial system. In our current system, lending money is morally precarious. Finally, a word about the women. I focus on what may seem like a side issue in today's gospel. Jesus tells this story about debt to challenge Simon the Pharisee's idea about the unnamed woman, the sinner who has crashed their dinner party. Simon, the wealthy and powerful teacher, believes that Jesus should see that an unclean, marginal woman should not be allowed to touch a rabbi's feet. Jesus should know better. She's not worthy. Jesus turns to Simon and says, You didn't give me water for my feet. You didn't greet me with a kiss. You did not anoint my head with oil. These were standard practices for welcoming a guest. Simon has disrespected Jesus. But this unclean woman has provided all of these standards and more. Jesus seems to say, your focus is all wrong. You may have a fancy house, a a beautiful dinner table, but how do you greet a visitor? Jesus doesn't rebuke the man for his wealth, but he doesn't congratulate him either. It's not about your address or the kind of car you drive. With Jesus, money doesn't buy you influence. And the kind of reputation that causes you to lose influence in the world, well, Jesus doesn't respect society's rules there either. This woman had Jesus' attention. The last line of our gospel passage today could seem like a throwaway, just a list of names. It's really pretty radical. Luke reveals that Jesus has financial backers, very surprising financial supporters. A group of women are followers of Jesus. Mary Magdalene, note, she's not our sinful woman. Joanna, Susanna, and others. Women who, in Jesus' day, were not thought to have value, were providing for Jesus' ministry out of their own resources. This is the final bit I have to say about the economy in the eyes of Jesus this morning. In Jesus' economy, everyone has value. The women whose society ignored, they funded his movement. Jesus didn't count anyone out. Rich and poor, woman and man, Roman or Jew, gay or straight, clever, not so clever, black, white, Latino, Asian, able-bodied or physically disabled, cisgendered or trans, everyone counts in Jesus' economy. Everyone has value.
When I wrote this sermon, obviously we hadn't had news about what happened in Miami in the early hours of this morning. When I wrote this sermon, it had not yet occurred the largest mass shooting in U.S. history. I don't have too much to say yet. We don't know too many details. But I couldn't talk about Jesus' economy where everyone has value without mentioning the way that the value of human life was disregarded last night. The way it continues to be disregarded in our discussions about gun laws that seem to go nowhere. The one piece of hope I have to say is this. The shooting last night happened in a gay nightclub in Orlando. We've seen over the last years how quickly the LGBT community can mobilize for change. Well, the gun owners messed with the wrong group last night. And I'm hopeful that this piece might be a turning point in the discussion. We need a turning point in the discussion about value of human life and about gun violence. Every life has value. Our bank accounts are often used these days to count our value. It was true in the time of Ahab. It was true in the time of Jesus. But part of being followers of Jesus is trying to reevaluate, trying to see ourselves and to see others from a different point of view. You're not a failure just because you have debt. You can move forward toward a healthier financial and spiritual life. Don't give up. Likewise, you haven't arrived just because you have accumulated wealth. You haven't won. You don't get to tell Jesus how the world works. Instead, Jesus will ask you how your actions display your values. How can you invest in ways that make a difference in the lives of debtors? How can you invest in ways that make a difference in the lives of those who suffer? Jesus' economics challenge us, and challenge us all, to demonstrate the values of justice, love, and yes, even forgiveness. Amen.